This is an ABC podcast. So this is a pretty big and very important topic we're doing today. It's something, Pete, that we've been wanting to do for a while too. And we recently got a message from one of you in our Insta DMs. Yeah, Matt got in touch and this is what he said. He said, hey, hookup team, I've been dating my partner for six months She's recently started disclosing DV in her previous relationship. Thankfully, she's been brave enough to report this to the police. I was wondering if you could do a podcast on how people like me can best love and support partners that have previously been in DV relationships. I really rate her and want to love and support her the best I can. I'm so glad Matt actually messaged us with this because you and I both, when we saw this DM, we were like, this is such an important conversation to have. Because not many people talk about how partners can help. Totally. I feel like a lot of us barely even know the basics of working through our own trauma if we have it, let alone knowing the best ways to help others. And that's what we're going to figure out in this episode. If you've experienced any sort of sexual and or relational abuse, how do you heal and learn to love and trust again? And if you're the partner of someone who's gone through trauma, how can you best support them? We also wanted to try and keep it really broad as well because, you know, whether you've experienced maybe an abusive childhood or a sexual assault, you know, maybe it happened once or maybe years ago. Maybe you've been in an abusive relationship like with coercive control happening, gaslighting, uh, no matter what it is. They're all extremely valid traumatic experiences and the trauma of that experience can affect people in so many different ways. Yeah, so no matter what you've gone through in this episode, we're here to help. You'll hear from an expert who will unpack how and why trauma affects us and how to work through it. And also, if you think that you haven't actually experienced any of this, well... It's still a really useful listen because you might hear some definitions and experiences coming up and you might go, hold on, this resonates with me. Like maybe you've actually experienced some trauma and abuse in past relationships and not even known it. Also, you should just listen because you never know if a friend or a future partner has gone through this and you might be able to learn some stuff and help support them better. Before we get started, a bit of a content warning because there's going to be conversations about abuse, both physical, emotional and sexual. So yeah, if you're not really ready for this, that's okay. You can tap out now. Uh, You can always come back and listen to this after. And we've got support resources, numbers that you can call in the show notes. Before we get into this episode, let's go over some definitions because I think it's really important that we all understand what trauma is and what it can look like. Yeah, definitely, because I feel like trauma has definitely become one of those buzzwords, you know, trauma dumping. trauma dumping. I think I've said this a few times where I've been like, that was the most traumatic experience of my whole life. I know. I like, look, we know that getting a parking ticket or tripping in front of your crush isn't the most traumatic experience of our lives, but what exactly is is traumatic. Well, we spoke to Peter Blaisdell. She's a psychotherapist and complex trauma therapist, and we asked her to define what trauma is. So trauma usually occurs when we're unable to protect ourselves from serious physical, psychological, and or emotional abuse, harm, or neglect. Trauma is commonly caused interpersonally by perpetrators that might be known or unknown to us. So that would include experiences like sexual assault, childhood abuse, intimate partner violence, coercive controlling abuse, and image-based abuse, all of which are some of the ways that we experience trauma. So that would mean a significant number of us in any form of attraction-based relationship have a trauma history, recent or not, caused by another or others. 
So like Peter has pointed out, it can look like many different things. Yeah, and one of the biggest things that we learn from doing the hookup and chatting to you about our love lives and our relationships and experiences with sex is that we all process things so differently. So if you've gone through a traumatic experience, like we said, whether it's a sexual assault or an abusive relationship, your brain might deal with it differently than how someone else might deal with it. Yeah, like fight, flight or fright response that's hard to say i know one more time it's like the four f's right it's like flight fright freeze that i think freeze i'm gonna do the freeze in the middle fright freeze or flight that's gonna help me there we go so we got that anyway (laughs) those are the three responses that a lot of people have right yeah and peter says this is not a comprehensive list but some of the more common symptoms that a trauma response can generate includes rapid mood changes, sleep disturbances, avoidance, disassociation, anxiety, depression, intrusive memories, thoughts, feelings, sensations, and other body or somatic symptoms like intense night sweats, diminished immune systems, but also other sorts of signals such as increased substance use and offer some some risk-seeking behaviour increases as well. Trauma responses that don't stop after the events are diagnostically known as PTSD or post-traumatic disorder, or alternatively, complex PTSD or complex, complex trauma is when a person has multiple experiences of trauma, abuse, and or neglect. So what exactly does PTSD look like for someone? Well, it's a lot of these symptoms that Peter just mentioned, and it's all caused by becoming stuck in that survival mode. It's really being stuck in one of those fight, flight, freeze responses. And with that, not just the event, but the ongoing traumatic response to the event is where we get stuck. So things such as we can rapidly shift moods, we can be quite mellow one moment and actually move into a fairly angry, rage-based state, withdraw another moment. It can affect our sleep. We can avoid event, relationships, experiences. We're stuck in a stress and survival response. But Peter also says you might not even realise that the trauma is there. I find it's really helpful to imagine the effects of trauma a bit like an iceberg. So what we might see and feel is the tip, but much more of what's actually happening and the effects of trauma are occurring well below the surface and that's outside our conscious awareness. And if it's outside our conscious awareness of what's happening, it's going to be outside our partner's conscious awareness as well. Pip, another buzzword that we always say triggered yeah triggering i mean it's kind of a joke for a lot of people we see it on socials all the time people jokingly Mm. comment it or like do a joke trigger warning before things but it's a very serious reality for some people completely and this is something that we asked peter about like what can that look like for people who have experienced trauma because in mental health circles there is a very real definition of what that means triggers can be clear and recognized as being tied to the trauma events or they can be really unclear as well but still actually associated with the event. So a trigger is something that could be physical. It can be caused by a sound, a smell, a taste, an image, and our body really leads the way with responding to that trigger by signaling out a survival response. And that might look something like sweating, shutting down, inability to focus, a racing heart, shortness of breath. Again, change in mood, fear, guilt, shame, checking out, all of those all of those. Um, Reactions, what I just listed, are common responses to triggers. 
If you've ever experienced some sort of abuse and come out of the other side of it, it can be really hard to put into words the trauma that you've experienced. But someone who's recently been extremely vulnerable and done just that is Mimi Zhu. Mimi is a queer Chinese-Australian writer and recently released a book called Be Not Afraid of Love. They speak about their first love, a relationship that they were in for years, and they call them X. Here's a little bit of the intro of the book. I was deeply entangled in an abusive, toxic, on-again, off-again relationship. We went through painful cycles of fear and love and had a difficult time differentiating between the two. The relationship was addictive and violent, and by the time it ended, I felt as if I had lost myself completely. Yeah, it's such a powerful read, but a lot of what they describe about their relationship involves, you know, gaslighting, emotional abuse, physical, sexual, coercive control, and basically uh, this guy, X, ended up assaulting them. So, yeah, their relationship was just full of abuse. But we didn't speak to Mimi about their relationship because I just don't think we need to make them relive those moments. But we did speak to them about what it was like when they were finally out of the relationship. Yeah, and one thing that they really emphasised is that you can experience a whole range of really powerful emotions across years after being a victim survivor of intimate partner abuse, which we want to share with you because... Sometimes it can be really reassuring to hear someone else's experience if you've gone through something similar. For Mimi, it looked like they broke this up into chapters as well, but it was numbness, anger, anxiety, grief, shame. But one of the main chapters and the biggest thing that Mimi wrote about was distrust, not only for others, but for themselves. I have trust issues for sure, like big time. I have intimacy issues and I actually think that a lot of people do as well because they have gone through relationship trauma whether from childhood to being a teenager to early adulthood whatever it is that has gone unaddressed and obviously none of us deserves that at all but I think just naming that trauma brings us a lot closer to trusting people fully right and seeing when we're being distrusting why if it's valid or if it's just our triggered states kind of acting up, trying to protect ourselves. You could have a great relationship with your parents or friends, but if a partner has put you through something traumatic like what Mimi experienced, it can completely cloud your judgment and stop you from trusting again. So how do you work through that and trust other people again? Yeah, especially because trust is such a vital part of intimacy, love and relationships, which is a whole part of the healing process. And Peter says it starts with... Two of the most common words that I use would be patience and presence when it comes to recovery. So along with great, clear communication, healthy boundaries, use of affirmative consent, educating yourself about trauma, having different types of support as well. These all help us to learn to trust others and repair our own instincts. Also normalizing trauma responses as survival responses. In other words, with these responses, we don't get a cognitive choice. These are responses that are hardwired into our nervous system in order for us to survive those sorts of experiences. So working within the relationship with a shared understanding, it's not what's wrong with you, it's what's happened to you which goes a long way in destigmatizing trauma and trauma responses. And it's a lot of self-work to identify triggers and really analyze them about why you're feeling them. I think there's so many layers to distrust. Um, and for me, the first 
way, the way to unpeel it, you know, and to uncover those layers is to be aware of when I'm distrustful, what's triggering me, whether it's valid or whether I'm just trying to protect myself. Triggers can really fuck with your gut feeling. They come out of nowhere sometimes and can prompt a really emotional, irrational response to situations. Yeah, totally. So, you know, what about your intuition? Like, how can you trust yourself again? Well, Peter says it can be a long process, but here's where you can start. So sharing your story with someone, that could be a close friend, a partner, a family member, a counsellor, a trusted person. The trust has to be there ultimately. Um, is a start because allowing someone to help you begin to rebuild is the beginning of learning to trust yourself and others again. So emotional and psychological abuse, which gaslighting is a type of, can be particularly difficult to identify um, what the impacts of that have been. It can be really confusing for the person who's been gaslit regularly as it's a form of coercive control. So it's subtle, it's persistent, it's deliberate, and it's controlling. So sharing, uh, sharing with a trusted other starts to help us put language around our confusion, our anger, grief, shame, triggers, and that mistrust. It helps us start to rebuild a different story around what we experienced being gaslit. So we're a lot more in control of the narrative as opposed to not being in control of the narrative which is part of being gaslit as well. Yeah, and Pip, like sometimes if you really don't trust your intuition, like you only go for like unhealthy people in relationships, Peter says like you really should be looking for someone that you trust, you know, like a friend, a mentor, a guardian, a parent, like and just get their guidance. Yeah, fully. Just like soundboard with somebody who's close to you because often they know you better than yourself. And I know that people do it all the time where it's like, Am I crazy? Am I seeing this? Are you seeing this? And it's always good to do that with someone else. For Mimi, part of dealing with their abusive relationship after their breakup was numbness, which meant that they were partying a lot, they were doing drugs, they were drinking, sleeping with people, and they were acting in what they called a really self-destructive way. Yeah, so technically they were getting back out there and dating, but they said that the way they were going about it was really causing more harm than good. So if you feel like you're in a similar situation or maybe you're unsure, like how do you know when you're ready to date again and make sure that it's a healthy way? Yeah, I'd say for most people that's just not going to be a straightforward um, yes or no. It's going to feel like I'd like to, but I don't know if I'm ready to. It's going to be really hard also if you're young And dating experiences are pretty normal as well. So you're going to want to put yourself out there, but there are going to be other parts of yourself that aren't ready to put yourself out there. And it's really going to be about respecting and listening to different parts of yourself before you make a decision. You also can change a decision at any point in time. So learning to tune in and clock what most, what, what people, situations and feelings within ourselves signal safety, comfort, reliability is a great start. But again, knowing that this can change easily. So ensuring that we have some form of support around us in the way of a friend, family member or a support service. So starting to kind of discuss with them that you might feel ready to date again, but you have mixed feelings or concerns around that really helps us feel supported orientated and start to put language into what's going to be a new experience, which is dating with a trauma story or dating with a trauma past. 
So that means that we've been able to name the point that our trauma is at and how we're working with it. This means that whomever we choose to date um, is not also your first, uh, your prime support person, just in case it doesn't work out. Okay, I'm wondering, Dee, should you tell your new partner about it? Because I feel like an important part of healing is opening up and telling somebody about what happened to you, right? Totally. I mean, Peter says it depends, though. Like, if you're in a new relationship, you need to make sure that it feels safe and supportive and the trust is there. And then, basically, whether or not you want to tell them about it is completely up to you. But if you do decide to, Peter has some tips on how to do this safely for both people. Okay, having a bit of a plan, in fact, first ensures that you have privacy. Also making sure aspects like as that you're substance-free when you're telling your story, that you have a disclosure agreement, that um, support boundaries and safety are in place when you disclose. So a disclosure agreement might be something like, I'm going to share something with you that's incredibly personal and it's private. Please let me talk without asking questions and please don't share this information unless you first talk to me. So setting up some really common and shared boundaries around the disclosure, super important to do first. Disclosing in person allows for you to get more support potentially, but for some people disclosing online um, or over the phone feels safer. So again, it's a personal choice. Also, disclosure is often easier if you do it in stages. So you might want to first only share that you've experienced trauma in the past in general. Later on, you might come back and share the headlines of what that trauma was that you've experienced. And then again, later on, when you're ready, you might choose to share some details. And that gives yourself time to kind of um, get used to the idea of sharing with a partner what that has been. But it also allows your nervous system time to recalibrate and adjust to this idea of trust, safety, and navigating boundaries as well. Disclosing when the time is right with a support with a supportive person present helps people to heal. So sharing trauma histories when the relationship is safe and respectful shifts trauma experiences from a place of shame and isolation into a place of connection where we can be validated, empathized with, and unburdened because it is a burden to carry around these tra- trauma stories. It also gives our partner a bit of a chance to destigmatize trauma experiences by recognizing what are the trauma-based responses and reactions that may have felt confusing for them before or without the context of this is what's happened to my partner. But again, it's based on the victim or survivor's own timeline always. All right, let's talk about if you are on the other side of this as a partner. How can you help? Uh, Because if your partner really doesn't want to talk about stuff or if you're not sure, how do you actually bring it up with them? Yeah, Peter says that it's really common for people to not want to talk about it, which is so fair because, well, it's them living with it, right? Like there can be a lot of fear and shame associated. And also some partners might still be in denial or disassociating from what actually happened. So, yeah, it can take time. So understanding that one's trust, autonomy, self-control, self-agency, compassion, sexual intimacy, self-esteem have been fundamentally disrupted by the trauma helps you begin to understand where your partner can, what your partner can and can't do right now, and that includes disclosing the traumatic events. Understanding that trauma must first serve the needs of the survivor and that that trust is an essential part of that. Also, you can bookmark it. 
such as continuing to offer, look, I'm here for you when you're ready to talk about this. And what you want to talk about is up to you. I respect your boundaries with your stories. That goes a really long way in helping your partner to start to imagine that there is trust and care and support available to them. And we need to recognize it's firstly about them and it's not about us. Let's say in time that this does happen, you're able to have a conversation or a few about it. How can you prepare yourself for it and basically receive the info in the best way? Right, because I know that for some people it is really difficult. Like, you know when you've had a conversation with somebody and they're opening up about something and you don't even know how to react? Do you hold their hand or do you, you let do them the, have space? The bat pat? Like you're just, just patting little... the bat? Or like that meme with the broom? Exactly, the meme with the broom. I hope you're okay. I don't know, me personally, I'm like, I hate getting a hug in those moments like – let me sob. Like, oh, yeah. I'm don't feeling touch claustrophobic me. already. So don't, don't touch talk. me. Yeah. But, I, you know, it's it's those questions. It's like, what do you do in that situation? And what do you even say back? Should you say anything at all? We asked Peter about this and she gave us some really useful tips. I would say, firstly, remember that you won't necessarily get the full story as it's generally too much to tell in one hit. So just be present. Check your body language affirm the disclosure agreement and ensure privacy. So that would be first stage. Then show that you're actively listening without judgment and try not to question until you're invited to actually ask questions around that. Try to signal support. That means sharing statements like, I'm here for you, I believe you. Such a powerful, um, such a powerful comment to follow up a trauma story. I'm also sorry that you've experienced that, that you're not alone and I'll help however feels helpful. Helps the person telling the story know that you're actively listening, that you're actively going to support them and most importantly that you actively believe them. A supporting arm around them may or may not feel good. So just check in first. Can I give you a hug? Don't take it personally if your partner says it doesn't feel right right now. They're just trying to tell their story without reliving it or being overwhelmed by the story and the details of it. Okay, let's circle back to that DM we got from Matt Pitt, which we told you about at the start of the show. Yeah, so he basically was asking, uh, my partner revealed that she had a past to do with DV in a relationship. Um, How can I best support and love her through this? Um, and that's what we want to answer here. As a partner of that person, how can you best help them? Well, Peter says that most of the time it just comes down to patience and presence. She quoted it the two Pete. She was like, patience and presence. And, of course, that can take on different forms across a long span of time because, you know, someone might not ever 100% heal. That is just the reality. It takes a great deal of quality communication to support a person's recovery. Communication shouldn't only focus on the trauma, but should clearly signal that what you're working on to have a caring, supporting and loving relationship in general, which hopefully is occurring in any quality relationship regardless. Also communicate what you want in a rela- in a loving, caring, supportive relationship. So eventually we do make room for the relationship to be experienced as reciprocal in ways that it can be during the healing process. Understand that recovery process is highly individual. So what works best for your partner might always not make sense to you, but you can ask what, where and how you can help form some sort of clarity. Remind them regularly that you're here for them and that you honour, celebrate and acknowledge any small steps forward in their healing, including aspects of healing the relationship 
and the ways that the relationship has actually helped that process as well. I think you can help enormously by becoming educated about trauma by reading, listening and learning from survivors and professionals who work in trauma and there's loads of resources out there about trauma. Also encouraging self-compassion in your partner and within yourself. So being in a relationship with a person with a person with trauma is incredibly common. Knowing the best way to support them and yourself is not. So encouraging self-compassion within everyone is key to moving forward. Peter also says it's about building up that feeling of safety. So like she said before, it's going to take great communication, patience and presence and time. And that's the ultimate formula to forging that safety again for your partner to open up and trust. The more safety that's built in, the more the intimacy can begin to return to the relationship. Try to remember that trauma survivors cannot switch trust on and off. Their ability to do so has been taken away from them and that trust will be rebuilt through repeated experiences of patience, presence, clear communication verbally and body language-wise. Also boundaries being respected, affirmative consent, triggers being recognised as just that, a trigger and not something to take personally. So sometimes I'll ask clients to use a traffic light system around touch and what safe touch feels like. Betty Martin's got a great video on YouTube explaining how this can work. And try to remember it's not what's wrong with your partner, but what's happened to them. Destigmatizing trauma helps rebuild trust. Also, if you are in the moment with your partner and something triggers them, Peter gave a really great tip. She basically said that the main goal was to try and break that feeling of reliving the memory and become present. And you can help them do that with this breathing technique. Reorientating back to the here and now by things such as box breathing. So that's counts of three breath in, holding for three, exhaling for for three, and waiting for three. Um, That's a great technique to bring ourselves into the here and now. Reorientating by looking around the room, looking out windows, looking at doors, helps the nervous system check that they're here instead of back in the trauma. Finding surfaces that we can press on, using our hands to squeeze against each other. All of those help the nervous system um, be relocated in the here and now and remind it that it's not actually reliving the trauma experiences. So still one of the best reads on trauma is the book The Body Keeps Score by Bessel van der Kolk and the title alone has been a game changer in how we understand the impact of trauma. I think a really huge takeaway that I want everyone to take from this episode, Pip, is that it's something that Mimi really spoke about in their book, that that healing journey isn't linear, like it's never completely fully over. And that's something that we all, as a partner or the person, you're just going to have to learn to live with. Yeah, in fact, Mimi actually came out of this and thought that healing was the end point, which they soon realized was definitely not true. I thought healing was me getting to a place where I was like, good. You know, I thought it was a place where I'm like, okay, I'm good. The past is a past. I don't have to look back anymore. I'm back to normal. You know what I mean? Okay. I love when they spoke about this because Pip, I feel like we've often been sold this idea of self-love. That's like, you're a boss bitch. You're a queen. You're complete. Nothing can stop you. You go out there and you slay, bitch. You slay. Yes. Major slay, mama. Nothing can slow you down. I'm not going to lie. I feel like I was caught up in that. Yeah, me too. There was definitely a movement of that kind of intense positivity, but 
what Mimi found was kind of actually relishing the messy and the chaotic and not abiding by that kind of like slay attitude. Yeah, that's what I love so much about this book is that Mimi really did end up in a place with their journey of healing to realize that, like you said, it wasn't destination, that healing was ongoing and that that was okay. Yeah, and that you can't fully shed what you've gone through like something as hectic as trauma and abuse. I think we need to shift the narrative to not trying to get to a destination of being all good again, but instead loving yourself through the messiness, through the heartbreak, and just being kind to yourself in that to get to a place where you can, you know, trust people again, right? Or be less triggered or be less like in pain about the mention of something. What's different is not that the trauma disappeared. What's different is that I'm learning to deal with it with kindness toward myself and compassion and a sense of self-awareness. And so that trauma now doesn't have the same grip on me that it used to, but instead is something that I can kind of work with to understand and then to move forward in my future relationships. We really want to end this episode just emphasizing how important it is to get help. If you're the person who's experienced the trauma or if you're the partner of someone who has, there's so much amazing special support out there and counselling servers that are free and national, including 1-800-RESPECT. Yeah, reach out, have a really great list of free specialist support services that address different types of trauma, such as Blue Knot, Brave Hearts, LGBTQ plus violence services, which include great information on being a trauma survivor and being a supportive partner. And if you're in a position to engage with specialist psychotherapy services, you know, therapies such as EMDR, and they are pretty much approaches that recognize much of the trauma is outside of our conscious awareness and held in our bodies. So that can be really helpful, kind of like what Peter was talking about with the iceberg analogy. Also, bringing our partners into these sessions when you feel ready to share your counseling sessions can be a really good idea too. It's important to know that like talking with or visiting trauma services doesn't actually mean that you have to take any action of any kind. It's kind of just like a first step. So Mm. even getting a foot in the door is a good thing. But yeah, there is so much more resources that we have for you. Peter gave heaps and Mimi as well. uh, And you can find them in our show notes. That was a lot to get through, but super huge, important information. Yeah. And I'm glad that we had this conversation. Yeah, it was a really big episode, but thank you so much for, for listening to it, especially if you are someone who hasn't experienced trauma or have a partner who has, but just generally want to know how to best support people. Like, I hate to be all like cliched and like hippie, but that's how we heal the world. You know what I mean? Mm. Is like where people caring about this stuff, just being more sensitive to the fact that like a lot of people have experienced abuse and trauma. Yeah. And one of the big things that Peter said, and I think is like a big takeaway for me personally, is that to help victim survivors is to actually talk about it because you destigmatize it. And the more we do that, the greater chances that people will go and get help. Completely. So share this episode with everyone and anyone who you think would love to hear it. Uh, and yeah, a big thank you as well, Pip, to Matt for DMing us and, and, you know, really championing wanting to help his partner and the reason why we pulled together this episode. Yeah, completely. Get in touch with us on our hookup Instagram at triplejthehookup and also you can email us thehookup at abc.net.au. We'll see you next time. Bye.